This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, welcome, everyone. Um, as I said in my opening remarks, uh, Professor Tanya Modaleski is the author of the, of the book, The Women Who Knew Too Much, Hitchcock and Feminist uh, Theory. In this book, she offers an original and still timely intervention into Hitchcock, Hitchcock scholarship as well as into film theory. So to begin, I just have a very general question for you. Why is Hitchcock still worth watching, and why do we have to keep up our guard? Uh, keep up our guard against whom? Well, there, I read something today where someone says, Hitchcock still has a lot of fans, but he has fewer and fewer critics. That's interesting that they say that, because I was reading um, one of my critic friends on Facebook who was saying, not another book on Hitchcock. Isn't there any other director that anybody wants to write about? Um, And it's true. They're pouring out books on Hitchcock. Um, So I think that, in fact, I disagree. I think there are there are a lot of fans, but there are a lot of critics, and there are a lot of courses on Hitchcock in classes. And sometimes it bothers me because I think that the way they're teaching it is maybe going about it the wrong way, um, putting him on this godlike uh, plane where um, you can't be critical of certain moves that he makes that are. I think troubling from a feminist point of view. And I guess what I, in a way what I was trying to suggest is that probably in the last 20 years or so, 15, uh, feminist criticism and theory has come under uh, attack, often unfairly in my opinion. And, and in fact, that's kind of what's often missing uh, from a lot of recent uh, work on Hitchcock. But let me, let's move on. What I think, as I was preparing for this um, interview today, I, and last week and the week before, um, I, your book on, uh, on Hitchcock is now in its third edition, and it was originally published in 1988. Um, and I know this because... When I was very, very young. We were both young. <laughs> and while she was writing her book, I was actually writing my dissertation, <laughs> and uh, we read each other's work a lot at the time. Um, you were the one who, if it weren't for you, I would not have written the book. Is it true? I remember I said to you one day, maybe I'll write a book on Hitchcock, because I was teaching a course, and mm. you said... You should do it. So I did. Well, I'm really glad that I made that suggestion. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, well, I, I could uh, say more complimentary things, but we'll get to the. Uh, we'll go on with our questions before that happens. Um, so I said the book on Hitchcock, 1988, but the uh, her, your fir- your essay your chapter on Rebecca was a version of a, uh, an essay you wrote uh, and published even earlier. Um, all the still from the film from Rebecca graces the covers of every one of the books. Mm-hmm. So Rebecca is obviously central to the way you think about Hitchcock. And since, as I said at the beginning, Hitchcock himself repudiated the film as a Hitchcock picture, without humor, too feminine, I wondered if you would say more about why, for you, why Rebecca is so central to understanding um, the films of Af- Alfred Hitchcock and why, even though he repudiates his own... Um, relationship to the film, why you think that relationship is central. Okay. I think that for all that people think of, many people think of Hitchcock as a kind of patriarchal director, 
I think he's a great director of women's films. And I, um, my first book was on uh, genres uh, that appealed to women, romances, gothics, and soap operas. And so the Rebecca piece actually was an extension of my interest in the female gothic. Um, and and be, uh, that's how I got interested in Hitchcock. I was like interested in the Gothic. I knew Rebecca was Gothic. I read I read the novel. Then I watched the film, um, and then I thought, Wow, you know, this guy really um, knows how to direct a woman's film. And then um, the more that I watched his later films, the more I felt at least some of them were. Well, Vertigo, I think, is a kind of reworking of the female gothic. I think other of his films um, nevertheless sort of plumb the psyches of uh, his female characters in ways that you seldom see male directors doing, um, Hollywood directors doing these days. Well, we've touched on it, but maybe we could get a little deeper conversation about how Hitchcock has been central, certainly, to the development of film studies as a discipline, but also film theory as a very sp- mm-hmm. specific uh, part of the discipline. So auteur studies of Hitchcock were very important in the 60s and 70s. We could talk about um, you know, studies, psychoanalytic approaches to cinema in the 70s and feminist film theory. And now recently in queer theory, there's a, lot, a return to Hitchcock again to think through these issues. Um, so I wondered what you see as the relationship in the third edition, the third printing of your book, you have a long interview with another uh, scholar um, who, in queer theory. A and, queer male theorist. Yeah, que- mm-hmm. queer male theorist, about the relationship between feminism and queer theory in relationship to Hitchcock criticism. Well, I got interested in Hitchcock as a queer theorist because I was forced into it um, by two scholars, Patricia White and Rona Berenstein, who said that I did not give enough um, uh, space to talking about the lesbian elements in Rebecca. And I talked about um, Mrs. Danvers. Of course, she has this attraction to Rebecca that I hope nobody in this audience missed. Um, (laughs) But uh, they argued that Rebecca also has this kind of allure for the heroine, who I call her the heroine because she has no name, um, that she has this kind of allure. And in that scene in the bedroom, um, you have both a kind of an attraction and a repulsion um, you know, sort of movement between like the picture of Maxim that's like right there, and then Mrs. Danvers is kind of like pulling her over and showing her all these intimate things, these fetishistic items of uh, and and sexual items of of Rebecca, the the underwear, the the fur, the the nightgown that she, you could see her hand through. Um, and she's and, and and she moves towards her as if like you know like Dracula summoning uh, the woman or the woman summoning Dracula however however it works um, and like she can't stop herself from 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 moving and and the whole idea of course is that um, everybody loves Rebecca and everybody is attracted to Rebecca and so she falls under the spell. 
But then Hitchcock being Hitchcock, she's falling under the spell of a dead woman. And so his theme of necrophilia kind uh, of begins there, maybe, although it could be that he's interested in necrophilia before Rebecca. I wouldn't swear. <laughs> Rebecca was the first. I doubt she was. <laughs> but, but, well, it's interesting in, the, in, the, in uh, Patty White, um, the critique is, that in a, in a, it, at least from what I was remembering about that, the, the writing, was that psychoanalytic feminist theory uh, you talked about Rebecca as a female Oedipal drama, a mm-hmm. story, you know, this is all the passageways, all mm-hmm. the shots in the film as she's going through, you know, tr- uh, doorways. And, and, and this is about her maturation from girlhood to proper uh, uh, adulthood, mm-hmm. um, which in the, in the film's turn is, is figured as being the proper wife and married. And, right. Okay. Be, being the second Mrs. De Winter and having no identity of your own. Right, but, but what I think what Patty White and others were saying, well, you know, feminist critics of a certain generation tend to see everything in terms of the relationship to the mother, whereas we need to refigure that. Mm-hmm. Am I right or am I... No, they, they criticized me because I, you know, at the time was looking at theories that talked about women's um, uh, original attachment to the mother and how that persevered throughout life and that the homosexual impulses of women could be traced back to the mother. And I was criticized for that, and I think rightly so, because um, I, if, if, if you keep tracing it back that far, you are playing into a notion of homosexuality as a regressive stage. Um, and so I think they're right to see that there's more to it than that. Although I don't, I, I think it starts there, but I don't think you know, I don't think I went far enough um, in in developing it. Right. Well, but there's also certain things that are available at any point in time, and this was really pathbreaking book, and still the only feminist full-length study of, of Hitchcock. Um, I, I wondered, um, what about Rebecca herself, the absent presence in this film, as a kind of feminist icon? Do you want to say a little bit about Rebecca? Um, yeah. She's, she's the supposed villain of the piece, but I see her as the feminist hero, um, because she's someone who um, defies uh, um, the patriarchal order. Um, she, she probably, uh, you know, in the book, the, uh, Maxim says she was, she was incapable of uh, tenderness or decency, and then he says she wasn't even normal. So there's this idea that she was, that, that she was also a, a lesbian. Um, so she's a person who um, uh, acts on her own sexuality, who laughs at the patriarchy, who's going to have a, a child or thinks she's going to have a child that's not Maxim's. And um, I think that there's a way in which you can kind of get behind a character like that. And if you think about it, you know, what's her worst? What, when I say to my students, like, what, what's she done that's, like, so bad? Well, of course, adultery, yeah. But um, other than that, well, she was mean to Ben. And, you know, it's like, well, like, does she deserve to die because she was mean to Ben? Um, and I think that... Uh, 
it's, it's easy to go along with seeing that, with, with the heroine and feeling happy that, like, she's dead and that he loves her. And this death, I also want to question, um, because in the book he just shoots her, and she's, like, thrilled, um, the wife is, the second wife. Um, in the, in the um, movie, of course, you couldn't do that, Censorship required that you couldn't have him get away with killing her. But come on. Like, first of all, we only have him telling us that um, what happened. And secondly, he says, I must have struck her. She moved forward. Then she fell. Then she hit her head on a piece of ship's tackle and was, in, and was dead. And it seems to me that that's as close as you can get with censorship to suggesting that he was responsible for it. And then, you know, like, why didn't he call somebody up? And he says, well, who would have believed me? Well, everybody would have believed him. Like, he was Maxim de Winter. Colonel Julian is, like, dying to believe him and continue having dinners at his house. So, for me, Rebecca can be seen as the person who defies patriarchy. The other thing that I think is interesting about her is feminist theory always talked about how woman is the object of the male gaze. Men look at beautiful women. Women are there to be looked at. And there's this incredible story about a woman who is so beautiful and so powerful, but she eludes the gaze. And there's that amazing shot where it traces, the, the camera traces her movements the night of the murder, but it never shows her. Like a lesser director would have shown a flashback, you know? He just, you know, she, she occupies, so I say she occupies patriarchy's blind space, that she's like, she's got all the dynamism and the power and is, um, uh, never pinned down by being shown to be this gorgeous woman that we all want to look at. Yeah, fabulous. Well, I want to return kind of to the beginning because you mentioned it a little bit, but turning a little bit to the production of the film's production history, it's mm-hmm. time. You know, from the start, Rebecca had been a battle of attrition uh, between the producer and the director. It was Selznick who had optioned uh, uh, Daphne du Maurier's book originally. Um, and he lured Hitchcock to Hollywood and exercised right of veto mm-hmm. over the script and casting. What can you tell us about the tug of war between producer and director? Well, apparently one of the first scripts that Hitchcock gave him um, had to do with Maxim smoking cigars on board ship and then people vomiting. And I guess that was his idea of what humor was. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, you know this this film that he says now that he said to Truffaut had no humor, um, but uh, Selznick was like, uh, uh-uh. uh, you know, you have got to stick to the novel because this is a story. This this was like millions of women loved this story, and 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 Selznick wanted that story told the way Du Maurier told it. And it went through many script changes, and eventually they used a lot of the dialogue that came straight from the novel. And Hitchcock was forced to remain close to the source text 
um, and didn't want to do it. But then, of course, as you, as I think you said, Truffaut, um, maybe you didn't say that, but but when he, in, in the interview with Truffaut, um, Truffaut said, I think you found some of mm-hmm. your most profound uh, subjects in Rebecca um, and so, some of your themes, some of your uh, techniques. Um, you found it in Rebecca. So Truffaut thought it was fundamentally a Hitchcock picture, and Hitchcock said it wasn't. But I wanted to argue that, indeed, it was a Hitchcock picture. Well, it's interesting thinking about that, because when I watched this film, it, although it's his first film made in the U.S., it's a Hollywood production, it seems very British. I mean, not only do we have all of the you know, uh, all the British actors that had, you know, come to Hollywood mm-hmm. in wartime. Um, the setting of Mandalay itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I wonder if you would talk just a little bit about, you know, is its relationship to both British and U.S. traditions at this time. Um, I can remember taking a class here when I was an undergraduate. I think it was... Chuck Wolf's class, where he was talking about the end of the film with the burning of with Mandalay mm. up in flames, as this kind of Hitchcock saying goodbye or you know blowing up the British tradition from which he had been part. Mm. It was this this setting image at the end, it. yeah, setting mm. fire to it, and um, and it also reminds me of a number of other films made around the same time. You know, I think of mm. Now Voyager, where mm. everything is middle classness. We have to get mm. rid of this aristocratic, this upper class, this holdover of the 19th century mm-hmm. that the Depression had shown to be absolutely bankrupt. Um, so middle classness is the thing. So he's going to have his nice middle class wife. Mandalay's gone. Mm-hmm. They can you know, maybe go to New York and get an apartment. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I think of now Voyager where mm-hmm. you begin within Boston and the manor and, mm-hmm. and everything is you know, completely cold and barren and sterile and and the mother and, you know, all that. And then at the end, of course, a similar kind of film about a you know, female, a woman trying to find herself and her own identity. You know, at the end, they're roasting weenies in the, the you know, in this grand hall. They're trying to make it more of a more middle class. Mm-hmm. But it, it, so I, I wondered if you had thoughts about that. Some have re- I read something today where someone was saying, well, actually, Mandalay is this aristocratic, masculine space of power. So it's this male space no. that's inhabited, this critic was saying, <laughs> but inhabited with this kind of female energy, this feminine energy, both from the presence of Rebecca and Mrs. Danvers. But what's being burned down here and left, it, it left a, you know, it's a kind of amazing final image because as his first American film, it does, it, it strikes me as being sunk, a kind of in between when I think about his British work uh, the, his films in the 30s. I, I, you know, I haven't paid, I, I haven't thought as much about those questions. Um, I, I do think that there's something very, in terms of it being a woman's film, there's something very, that, 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 that has lingered in its appeal to women. This, the England, the, um, you know, Harlequin romances, yes. um, all of these things, there are all these guys with mansions that, you know, and women are orphans and they wind up being like governesses or whatever. And that's, that's, that's a story that still appeals to so many women today. Um, 
So from a women's perspective, it seems to me that it's still, that kind of class thing still exists. But I think the criticism where you have a favelle, you know, who's saying, well, you guys are just aristocrats and you're hanging together and so the truth will never be known. So the kind of class differences that you see in in Rebecca, I, I, I don't think you see them again. Maybe you see them to some extent in Vertigo, um, mm-hmm. but um, I, I think you're right. I think it's kind of, a lot of that sort of goes by the way. Um, well, you know, and Favell is kind of, you know, he's a, he's the worst of the worst. He's a parasite on the parasite of the people. I mean, you know, he hasn't, he doesn't work. Find me a way to live where I could, don't have to work. And I, mm-hmm. so, you know, this, again, the kind of push towards middle classness is this, Kind yeah. of, we need to get rid of this aristocratic, this kind of, yeah. you know, it comes out of the 20s and peaks in the 30s, but by mm-hmm. the 40s, I just feel like there's this very strong sentiment towards a, a kind of middle classness that uh, the Joan Fontaine character represents, even her dress, and, you know, much more simple and so on. Okay, well, I want to just um, shift a little bit to casting and stars, and yeah. I wonder if you have any thoughts about this. Um, so apparently having looked at Ronald Coleman, William Powell, and David Niven for the role of Maxim, uh, they settled on Laurence Olivier, uh, hot from his success with Wuthering Heights. Uh, the hope, at least for Olivier, was that Vivian Lee, whom he just married, would join him. Uh, but Selznick demurred. I mean, as you can't imagine, they did a screen test of, um, of Vivian Lee, but she was too famous at this point to play a bedazzled ingenue convincingly. And her screen test was, according to, to uh, Selznick, really terrible. So um, dozens of actresses were auditioned to play the, the, the Joan Fontaine role, um, and she emerged eventually as the preferred choice. So what do you make of the chemistry, or what many see as the lack of chemistry, between Olivier and Fontaine, um, uh, of Judith Danvers' performance here? Um, I love Judith the Anderson, I, 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 yeah. I love the lack of of chemistry. I mean, I think it really works because I think that Maxim that everybody is under Rebecca's spell, and that Maxim continues to be under Rebecca's spell as much as he's like furious at her. I mean, love is close to hate, and you know, you get that. The passion is still for Rebecca, and he wants like a little girl. He wants somebody who'll never be thirty-six years old, and somebody he can order around and say, "Stop biting your nails," and all of that. So. Um, it seems to me that it really works um, that they don't have um, the chemistry that um, you, you, you might get in a lot of other love stories and a lot of other gothics. And um, so, so that works for me. It's true that, that, that Hitchcock and Selznick both were very upset with uh, Olivier. They felt that he... Didn't, he wasn't really invested in the role because he didn't get his wife um, on, the, um, on board, and so he just kind of threw away his lines. But it, it works for me um, in my reading, which is to give Rebecca more weight and the nameless heroine less weight. Um, they also had problems with Joan Fontaine because she was so young, yeah. and um, they had to really coach her all the way through. She became a, a, a tremendous... I think she does really well in this, um, oh, just yeah, because she is so gauche. Yeah. 
So even though it was kind of hard work working with both of them, I think the result was felicitous. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking in that final, in the boathouse, when he, he confesses to uh, Joan Fontaine that he, you know, what, what had happened and everything. Mm-hmm. But what we learned from him is that he felt pretty infantilized. I mean, Rebecca was so powerful mm-hmm. and uh, she had breeding brains mm-hmm. and beauty and had mm-hmm. the world at her fingertips. And he was this, you know, that somehow he felt childlike in relationship to her. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. It was weird watching it this time and thinking as much as he infantilizes... Um, there's a, there's a total reversal, which is even a little clearer in the novel, because early in the novel she thinks he's patting her head just like he pats the, the head of Jasper the dog. Um, later in the novel, she pats his head like he was Jasper the dog. So there is, there is this, this reversal where she kind of grows up and he is saying, you, you can't understand, can you? Um, in this little boy voice. Right. Um, so there, there, is that, there is that role. So Judith uh, Anderson's performance here. It's magnificent, <laughs> magnificent. She was a Broadway actress, and she came, and she said the only reason she came was to, so that she could work with Hitchcock. And boy, did she do a great job. But it was interesting watching it this time, too. Think, I, I hear you when you say you read it as a woman's film, you read it as a female gothic. There's also, of course, elements of horror, which is related mm-hmm. to the gothic, the uncanny. She's the, like the witch, yeah. the, the vampire. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, could you say more about the uncanny spaces in Rebecca and how they reveal uh, the kind of physical and psychological passage of the heroine from girlish immaturity to married womanhood? Um, as I said, this is actually David uh, Grevin who says that Mandalay is massive and maze-like and emanates, uh, um, and emanates male ancestral power. I think Mandalay is Rebecca. I think, you know, right from the beginning when she's, you know, when the camera is kind of moving in and then the light goes on, you know, that's Rebecca lighting up that, that house. Um, she's the one who, you know, has the morning room. She's the one who orders the servants around. It's, to, to me, it's yeah. like, it's, it's, it's hers, and she's not going to let him have it. Yep. Um, yep. So I, I think it's, it's interesting that It's he, interesting, that too, that that's, what, that's what masculine. goes up in flames, the powerful woman who can run this house and talented mm. and you know, unconventional mm. and a, and a, and a mm. threat to patriarchy. Mm. Um, and that's what's burned down in mm. favor of the middle, new middle-class couple. Mm-hmm. Oh. But the thing that I like to ask is, you know, if, if we say that um, death by drowning didn't kill her, you know, can we be sure that death by fire, you know, has utterly extinguished her? The name of the book in the, the name of the boat in the book is Je Reviens, I Come Back. Um, and that's another mm-hmm. thing that Hitchcock found in Rebecca, which was the power of the woman to return. Think Psycho, think Vertigo, you know, think so many films where um, the woman won't stay dead as, as hard as he might try to kind of, you know, insist that she is dead. There's always this threat of her return, this threat and maybe the desire, maybe. 
So just to circle back, and then we can open up for your questions and comments. Um, and maybe I, I was too, too excited and nervous at the beginning to really hear the answer, but that for you, why is Rebecca of all of Hitchcock's films? I mean, maybe you, you know, that was the image for, the, that was the first film that you, mm-hmm. that you wrote about mm-hmm. uh, for Hitchcock, but that it, it, it's emblematic, I think, for you of mm-hmm. his entire mm-hmm. career. So I just... Mm-hmm. I, I think there are many things, but the one thing I was thinking about especially is the way Hitchcock... And that's why, that also speaks to why he's so relevant today, that his films are centrally concerned with destabilizing identity in a lot of ways, but gender identity is the one that I focused on a lot. But the fact that in Rebecca, you know, her identity keeps getting wiped out by Rebecca. She puts on that dress and she becomes Rebecca. She goes up into the room and she sits there while he, while, while Mrs. Danvers pretends to comb her hair. Um, she's she's constantly being taken over by Rebecca and. Um, just like Norman Bates is being taken over by by his mother, and that in and and it's and and that Hitchcock also brings the spectator into close identification with uh, female characters, which means men and women are identifying with female characters, and so there's a kind of and and women are identifying with male characters, and he's I think he's doing this deliberately, and I think. This whole, I mean, today we talk so much about trans, you know, trans movement, and I think that his films are so relevant because of the way he plays with identity and questions the stability of identity. And I think he gets it first in Rebecca. I mean, I'm sure there are other earlier movies where we can see elements right. of that, but I think it really comes together. That is the central theme of Rebecca, how she's going to, like, I mean, the fact that it's called Rebecca, who has a first name, and she doesn't have any name, um, you know, where is she going to find her identity? And she's trying to find it, and um, then she keeps being inhabited by, by this other woman. Mm-hmm. Like Roman Bates keeps being inhabited by another woman, mm-hmm. and and in Vertigo, where um, Jimmy Stewart is continually drawn into the subjectivity of Madeline, to the point where he actually dreams the dream that she dreams, which is a dream of of death and annihilation. So. We're happy to open up for uh, your questions or comments or anything you'd like to um, discuss. I wonder if you could riff a little on the idea of men behaving sadly and uh, Maxim in this picture, sort of to complement the reading. Um, you say, maybe tell her a little bit more about Jack Halberstam's piece. <laughs> men behaving sadly, I love the phrase. Say more. <laughs> Well, Jack Halberstam has a, I just read his blog where he's talking about Manchester by the Sea. And he says yeah. it's all about men behaving badly, sadly. And basically, the argument here is that what we're seeing in the cinema in this last year are all these films about white men uh, who are really, really sad and life has treated them. I mean, it's part of like why, why the support for Trump. Um, that 
this we're all supposed to feel for these sad, melancholic men, all these white men. But I haven't seen Manchester by the Sea, but apparently at some point where his co-workers, he has like an African-American and another person of color, and he feels you know, they're berating him and he should be in a different position. So the whole idea of the sad white man as a kind of trope for what we're seeing politically um, in this country, that was Jack Halberstam's um, argument. So I think, Naomi, you're suggesting that here we have an early, you know, um, you know the, the sad maxim, when actually he's, he's simply guilty. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know yeah, but it, you're right. I mean, he is he is behaving sadly, and to the extent that he becomes sad instead of like always angry, um, perhaps you know we feel some sympathy. I mean, I try to resist it all, but 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 perhaps you know um, we are um, being invited to feel some sympathy. Certainly, that's the case in Vertigo, for example. I mean, Sky behaving sadly, Jesus. Um, and uh, he's so sadistic towards towards this this woman, um, towards Madeline at the end, and then Judy when she becomes Madeline again. Um, and the sadism is what I feel, but the way that he's been critically received by most male critics is just you know that sadness is just overwhelming that melancholia. And it is melancholia. When men behave sadly, it's melancholia. When women behave sadly, it's depression, you know? And that's like a real central trope, I think, in Western literature and Western culture, the, the elevation of sadness into something that's called melancholia when it's men, um, the devaluation of sadness when it's women, where they're just depressed and mopey, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, that that's something to think about in relation to, to uh, Maxim and to Scotty and to the way that critics can continue to say something like Vertigo is a great love story when I see it as a sadistic um, brutalization of women. Were other directors in the time period when Hitchcock made this also dealing with, with gender identity or lesbianism, or was he relatively unique at that point? Boy, I would have to give a lot more thought to that. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? Definitely, there's lots of people have written. I mean, I think of Patty Laura. White's book, The Uninvited, talks about a number of Hollywood films. It's, a, it's the same way, I think, that... Um, how we read it, how we recognize it. I mean, a lot of people, we were saying at the beginning, you know, who here thinks Mrs. Danvers is a lesbian? Mm. Uh, I mean, even the, <laughs> the production code administration was very concerned about the script and wanted they to make knew. sure. They knew. <laughs> so, I, I, but I don't think it was just Hitchcock. I think Hitchcock, as, as, as uh, Professor Modleski suggested, is really, really interesting in the way that he deals with the destabilization of identity. But there's plenty of other films and many critics. I'm thinking of, um, what's I'm thinking of somebody whose name I've forgotten, who's written a whole book about the 30s and 40s and kind of um, queer identities. And not Patricia White. Not Patricia White. Mm-hmm. Come on, he's um, he'll be very upset that I forgot. No, 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 no. 
It's a, it's a, I think a, it's he a has guy. a piece in one of... <laughs> I forgot, I'm sorry. But yes, there, there are... I will remember if you ever want to uh, email me and I'll tell you. I'll look at... I have Google. I could look Don't it up. Leave. What? No, but I know there are plenty <laughs> of studies from The Uninvited by Patricia White. Other, you know, talking about this period um, in more complicated ways. And certainly, I would say, even my own work on the tw 20s in Germany, um, films, mm. these oh, were yeah. all these themes of, I mean, this was a relatively open secret. And there was a lot of interest um, by the public, especially young women who had income disposable of their own, really in large numbers starting in the 20s, who flocked to see, you know, drag shows and all kinds of uh, performances of different kinds of identities. We could look at even von Sternberg and the Dietrich cycle or, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a, I, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I mean, there's a way in which Hollywood is really very gay. And, you know, it's, it's, it's so I think, been really you know, and I mean, the, the actors and, you know, everybody, I mean, so, they, but here they're supposed to play very heterosexual roles. So I think it's kind of, I was actually kind of amused this time seeing the film uh, you know, Lawrence Olivier, who was definitely very, he was bi, and you, you see definitely their gestures he's making that are, so, you know, with the raised eyebrow and everything. Mm -hmm. you know, he's sort of, he, I don't know if he's playing with it subliminally or not, but there's something coming out. And, and I think, you know, what you were saying about the uh, he, way, he, way Hitchcock destabilizes uh, gender identity, you see that very much in, in the way he uses Jimmy Stewart. I mean, Jimmy Stewart is a very mm -hmm. sort of, he's sort of almost, um, there's almost a, an impotent quality to him in both those films, Rear Window and uh, Vertigo, no? And he's, uh, yeah, Thomas Elsesser has written about Hitchcock as being, um, as, as, as being himself something of a dandy. I'm not sure I kind of go along with that part, but that, that the dandy figure is important in Hitchcock you know, in a lot of the earlier films, um, but somewhat somewhat later too. So that would that would play into what you're talking about as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you everyone for for coming thank out you. and being with us tonight. Thank you, Tanya Modleski, for your comments. And we hope to see you. We have a lot of other great events, so please uh, look on the website and join us again. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tony. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.